This is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! Hello, small business warriors. I'm Joel Volk, and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. Hello. Hey, Cliff. It's Joel. Hey, Joel. What's going on? I need a favor. I'm about to interview the GM of a winery in Paso Robles for the Small BizCast. Oh, cool. Which winery? Broken Earth. Broken Earth. Wait, wait, wait. Broken Earth. Is that the one on the uh, on the east side of Paso Robles? About uh, maybe 2,500 acres, wide varietal of different wines, and maybe in the 20 to $70 range? That's it. That's exactly right. Broken Earth. Justin Tooley is the general manager, and he really knows his business. And since you know so much about wine and the industry, I thought maybe you'd like to help me interview him. Yeah, I'd love to. This sounds like fun. We're recording now, so I'm going to introduce you. Cliff Scott of the Scott Group is a branding and marketing expert. You may remember Cliff from our sixth episode, where I still hear feedback from people saying just how great that podcast was. One of Cliff's great passions is his appreciation of wine. His travels and his home life are often surrounded by wine, and with Cliff's knowledge of business and his thirst for knowledge, I thought he'd be the perfect partner to explore the business. The wine business itself is very complex. It encompasses manufacturing, science, and artisanship, sales, and agriculture. It would be hard to master any one of those areas of expertise, let alone all of them. And to do so, you need a clear vision and strong leadership. That's why we invited Justin Tooley of Broken Earth Wines of Paso Robles. I want to thank both of you for being here. Justin, how did you get started in the industry? It was in Santa Barbara. It was Santa Barbara Alpha Strategies. And one of our investors was the Wrigley family. So when the whole market crashed and uh, everything kind of went haywire, I ended up going to work for the Wrigley's as their estate controller. But during that time, they have a small 10,000 case winery. I fell in love with the wine industry. And the, the old general manager out there, John Falacone, taught me all about wine. And so I went from there and worked for Justin Winery. And uh, <laughs> I missed the days of the 10,000 case winery, the romance of it. Yeah, Rusak is, um, is a great winery. It's probably the best winery uh, up in Santa Ynez if, if I was going to vote on it. It, it. At the time, they were starting the project of just growing vines out at Catalina Island. And so... The, the challenge was, how do you get the vines from Catalina and bring them back to San Ynez? So uh, I think John had the idea it could either go on their yacht or on their helicopter. Ended up going on their, their helicopter, from what I heard. <laughs> Are you familiar with what, uh, what the Wagner family is doing with, uh, with, with their wines down in Argentina and bringing them up with Red Schooner? No. Yeah, so so Camus is uh, has got a label called Red Schooner. They they grow a ton of Malbec down in Argentina. Um, they pick it, they immediately put it into cold storage, put it on ships, ship it up to to Napa, where they make the wine up in Napa. And you know what? It's probably some of the best Malbec I've ever had. Interesting. Yeah. And they don't even bottle it by vintage. They bottle it by schooner number. I mean, it's, 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 so they're on schooner number eight right now. But what's going on in the wine industry is so wild. We, uh, um, we work with a group that uh, actually stores wine underwater. 
And oh, so wow. it's, at, it's in the Channel Islands, you may have heard this, but you know, it, to age wine, there's that tirage of it. So when you put it at a certain depth and the, the motion of the ocean, you, they drop pallets literally off the Channel Islands, they put it at a certain depth, and that, that effect of the ocean will age it for every one year that it's in a cellar under ocean is the ratio. So one year under the ocean is equivalent to five years in a cellar. So it's the pressure and the currents that create the... Yeah, it breaks up the molecules in the wine. I love it because it's a fantastic marketing ploy. You actually get the bottles back and there's seaweed and barnacles on it. Oh, but I mean, and it's an old French, I mean, it's not new by any means, but the French understood this too, is that it'll age wine in a quicker manner. Um, and we're set to get our first palette back uh, at the end of this year. So we'll see how that tastes. Oh, fabulous. Oh, yeah. What is that process called? <clears throat> the, the company is called Ocean's Depths. Uh, Ocean Depths. I, I don't know if there's a, a real name for that. It's unique, at least from, from my understanding of it. You know, it's, it's funny, Justin, that, that you say that. Um, I think the reason why Joel asked me to join today is I'm an amateur wine collector and I've got a wine cellar. And when my cooling guy came out, he said, well, what, what temperature do you want to keep your, your wine at? And I said, well, what's, what's the industry standard? He said, well, 50 to 55 degrees. And I said, what if I kept it like 55 to 60 degrees? He said, well, it would just age a little quicker. I said, oh God, that, that, that works for me because I'm, I'm not sure how many years I have left. So, uh, that, you know, it's like, I, I'm not buying a lot of green bananas these days. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, I know it's one of the things is the, the domestic market is everybody, 90% of people drink wine within 24 hours. The, the idea that newer is better and the newer vintage is better. It's good to hear there's some of you good traditionalists out there. We were just talking about that uh, a minute ago when we were kind of, discussing discuss, you know our conversation with you is that one of the joys that I think Cliff gets is that he, he's got so much anticipation of waiting for his wine to get to the place where he's ready to try it that that's part of the joy and I'm I'm sure I fall in that 20 you know you, I just bought a couple of bottles of, from Broken Earth and I'm sure that that weekend they were they were at least one of them was opened up I'm sure that that's that's who I am for sure so that's why I want to Cliff here because for me I'm a business person I'm really fascinated by the wine industry, I see a bunch of micro businesses within it. I can't imagine what it's like to have all those moving parts to run a business. And then you have the artistry and the, the, and the passion of your, of the, the people you work with to make the best wine you can. I, I got to see, think there's a lot of complexity. So I needed, I needed the Cliff's wine vocabulary in my business, you know, mind to kind of double team on you. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. And, and in reading about you, it seems like that's really why you like it so much. There's a lot of complexity to this business. It's not a simple business at all. And that seems to be how you uh, position yourself. Is that fair? Yeah. No, I mean, that's the part that I enjoy the most. Like you said, there's so many parts to this business. And you could take any one of these parts and spend a whole lifetime of learning about it. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it. But the complexity of, again, making a very good ball of wine. You want that to sit in oak as long as possible. But the business side, and Joel, I, I'm with you on that, is I look at this as a manufacturing industry. No different from a shoe company. The faster that we can get this through process one, through process through and out into the market and selling it, 
I mean, that's how you really separate yourself from the rest of the pack. And that's what Gallo, that's what Constellation, you know, the big guys have learned how to do. And it's fascinating how they treat it. Now, I mean, if you take uh, a small mom and pop winery and that aging process and what that looks like, I mean, they're, they're able to, you know, sell a bottle of wine for a hundred bucks and kind of make their margin that way. But the bigger you get, the faster the turnover. And um, that's certainly where my expertise is. So me and Chris, I don't know, Joel, if you've met Chris, the winemaker. Yeah, I believe I had it in the first time we went to Broken Earth. We, he was, uh, we, we met him. Yeah. Yeah. He's very much the traditionalist. So he doesn't believe that uh, any wine should be dr consumed at this point, at least red wine before 2012. So um, he's he's got the traditional view, and then I got the more business side. And, so how does that work? Are you uh, colleagues? Or is it a collegiate relationship, or is it a contentious relationship? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it, there's always a healthy healthy side to it, but I, I, he understands the business side, uh, and um, certainly he came from Australia and, and the old world style of winemaking. So. Um, I think we treat it here domestically far different from, from the way they do it back in France, back in Australia. Um, so he appreciates that side of it. I think we both have our own sandboxes. He has his products that he can age for 10 years and kind of go outside the normalcy of the domestic market. There's certain products that we have where I'll, I'll ask for maybe a little more petite Syrah to give it more of a fruit lift maybe a little bit of residual sugar to appease the masses. I think he'll, uh, yeah, he'll entertain my side. And, and certainly I love drinking his wine on the 10 year old stuff too. But he understands that for him to be able to afford to make the, the expensive wine, you, you got to be able to put out the stuff that that people like me would might, uh, might be interested in. Is that it? Yeah, absolutely. Justin, do you, does Broken Earth use everything that it grows or do you sell, you sell off a, a, a lot of the fruit to other users? So, I mean, as far as Broken Earth goes is that we're very well diversified for the modern market. Uh, we have a, uh, Jerry um, Forsythe, uh, he lives in Chicago. He is a fourth generation farmer. Um, he also is the CEO, uh, president of Indec Energy Corporation. So uh, him and his family are out in Chicago, uh, but he understands the farming side of it and bought the, the land back in 2004. So there's, so there's a large fortune. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's where that started. So uh, bought it back in 2004. And I think his idea of this was, I want to get into the grape growing side. Paso in its infancy at that time um, certainly was coming online with Jay Lore has always been there, Justin, um, but it was really coming into its own. Uh, and so uh, 2004, great prices were fantastic. People were starting to, Paso was getting noticeable, great investment uh, of the property. Then a, a downtick in the economy like 2008 comes along and you really see what it's like when you spend all this money on the farming side and there's no return. You know, basically the fruit just drops and there's no great prices. 2010, he started to develop Broken Earth as a brand. And the brand came from Rancho Tierra Rajada, which is the name of the vineyard. The vineyard was is actually the second oldest commercial vineyard in 
on the Central Coast. Started by a group of guys, Wayne Rogers, the old actor, uh, James Kahn, Peter Falk, uh, local guy Herman Schwartz. 1973, they planted 500 acres of Merlot, and that vineyard at the time was called Rancho Tierra Rajada. So when we purchased it in 2004, uh, we, we called it Continental Vineyards. It was a great growing operation. 2008 rolled around, saw the ugly side of the business, started to develop brands, started to develop tasting rooms. So we have a tasting room here in Paso Robles. We also have one in Long Grove, uh, just outside of Chicago. Uh, we're very diversified in our trade market. We operate in all 35 of the major markets. Two brands, Pool, which is our volume mover at a, call it a $12.99 price point. Broken Earth, which is a $20 price point on the shelf. And then we have reserve levels, limited releases. This is really where Chris gets to play around and have a lot of fun. Those wines are anywhere from $30 to $80 and only found in our tasting. And then the, the fun part, which is new to me, or at least I, I've been with Broken Earth for just over, under three years, is the private label side. Private label, that is um, anything from direct consumer standpoint. Somebody has a birthday or a wedding, we'll put their picture on it. At a bigger level to major corporations, major retailers, having their own control, control label and marketing that aspect. So right now we're, we are selling fruit. Um, we are selling, I would say, approximately 30% of the, the fruit that we have as we continue to build the brands. Um, but we also participate in uh, bulk sales, um, uh, both the direct consumer uh, trade and private label side of the business. You doing any special private labels with restaurant chains? Yeah. So one of our bigger clients is the Live Nation group, Hard Rock International. This is the part I enjoy is because I'm a big sports fan. So I always try and target some of the, we had a label with the Boston Red Sox. We had one with Indianapolis Colts. I tried to position that one. Chris, our winemaker, is a big Patriots fan. And so I tried to pick the rival of the, the Patriots, knowing that he would have to pour at the stadium and wear a jersey on it. So a um, little bit of payback on, on that one. But, yeah, so um, we also work with uh, various groups here on the Central Coast, uh, a lot of golf courses uh, throughout the nation as well. So I, received, I received a bottle of Dodgers wine and I just put it on the shelf thinking it's a really nice memento, but I'm probably not going to enjoy drinking it. Is that probably not the right attitude? Should I? Well, I've been after the Dodgers one for a long time and uh, it's the, um, the Linquist guys out of Santa Barbara that have that, that label. Um, and they make fantastic wine. So uh, it's been hard to pull away from them, but it, I mean, it's really good wine. It That's is. good to know. Let's go back to these these sort of three separate businesses that you have, or or maybe I could add a fourth one if I include the real estate business as a fourth. You know, you've got this farming, growing business. You've got a very technical manufacturing. You know, you almost need a chemistry background for that business. Um, and then you've got the marketing, sales, and distribution business, right? I mean, these are. These are very three, these are three very, very different types of businesses. And yet here you are, you know, running all three of them and joining them together. If, if you had to rank them, how would you rank them in terms of core competencies of Broken Earth? So, I, you know, a lot of times I'll get, I'll be pouring in an event and I'll get, you know, an ex-CPA, a, a CEO, they'll say, 
you know, I, I've done my, my 40 years in the hard business. I just want to move to Paso Robles and buy a winery and get in the wine business. And I, <laughs> and I have to laugh because, I mean, it's got to be uh, the most complex business I can imagine. To answer your question, how Broken Earth is situated is that there's no one person that can do all three. You really have to uh, rely on the expertise of uh, individuals within the company to manage it all. So, I mean, let's, let's take the, the farming side of it. Uh, we use vineyard professional services. They're here, farming advisory, vineyard management service. Randy Heinsen has tons of knowledge, very respected here on the Central Coast to really understand the investment side of the farming. You're looking nowadays at $20,000 of investment per acre and depending on what you plant, anywhere from three to five years to get your commercial viable first crop. So the, the startup cost, the amount to just get the fruit in the vine or the vines in the land, I mean, $20,000. Uh, Napa, you're looking uh, three, four X uh, more than that. And that's partly why a lot of people are coming to Paso is because the, the land is cheaper, the fruit is just as good. But, you know, then you need somebody that obviously when you have this investment that knows the different pests that, that can damage the vines, can be able to manage, so it's agricultural. So you get, if you get a heat spike, if you get, you know, rains in, in May that cause, that cause mold on the vines, somebody that really has that expertise because you are tied to that crop. And if that crop overproduces or underproduces, both of those cause problems, you have a real issue on your hand. So uh, Vineyard Professional Services manages that aspect of our business. And then you have Chris Cameron who manages uh, the winemaking side and you touched on it. it. It is the amount of innovation that's happening in the wine industry. Uh, it used to be that, um, you know, the old traditional way you'd have the winemaker that goes out in the vines and he would, he would smell the fruit and taste the fruit and call his pick date on that side, come in and uh, vinify the wine in the cellar. You have a lot of wineries now that are utilizing technology. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but you can make water into wine uh, basically in a lab these days understanding not only the farming side, which is the most critical aspect of that, but... I got to interrupt you for just one second, because when you said that about water into wine, Cliff's expression, I wish I wish this was uh, something that people, the listeners could hear. Cliff was a wine lover. He did not have a happy look on his face. He had a surely you jest, I'm, you're very amusing look on your face. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just had to just kind of jump in there and give the listener a little bit of, of uh, the inside knowledge of what Cliff was reacting to. That. So go ahead. Sorry, Justin. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and that's just it. I mean, you, I won't pick on anybody today, but you have some bigger operations that are formula driven. They, for the last 30 years, that wine has tasted the same and call it, you know, whatever additives they put in there, right. that wine's going to taste the, the same. Uh, one of the things I'm proud of at Broken Earth is, is that we, each vintage is different. So each vintage not only resembles the terroir, it's an honest wine, but Chris, based on the, the many factors, weather factors, yields, everything else that went on in that year, uh, that really tells that story of the vintage that year. Again, Chris being a very traditionalist, old world making or old style uh, winemaking, th there's that process of it. 
And the business process of that goes, oak is tremendously expensive. A more traditional um, winery, they own the production facility. Certainly there's virtual wineries out here, but the cost of tanks and the cost of production and cost of labor, uh, tremendous amount of depreciation expense and burden cost on those. And that gets back to my earlier point, the sooner you can get it in a bottle, the better. However, you know, you can make wine. There's a variety of things to accelerate the wine, cut down on cost, but you truly don't have an honest wine that you're putting out to the consumers. Earlier when you were talking about the submersing the wine in, in ocean water, might that be the magic bullet towards speeding up the process of putting a good quality wine out at a very quick rate? Yeah, and there, there's certain things that you can do as far as flashing the wine is what the industry term is that accelerates the aging process. You can do that during, during the fermentation process or actually during the, the cellar process. One of the challenges of the industry is the newer, the better. So one of the difficulties of the wine side is that you don't know what that crop is gonna be. So again, if you underproduce crop, you're, you know, back in 2015, Cabernet was down 50%. So your farming costs still remain the same, but now you have 50% less supply and you have two choices. You can either increase your, your bottle cost, your SRP by 50%, and then what does that affect on your brand and the overall long-term vision of that? Or you could eat the cost, or what a lot of savvy people did is they said, heck, I know some of the bigger guys out here, they're down 50%. I'm going to sell my fruit at two, three uh, X of what, what the value is, and maybe just not produce a vintage that year. So the challenges of that, and then uh, my favorite side is the distribution side. You have 100, 200,000 brands out there, and I don't think there's any more competitive uh, landscape than, than that. Um, dealing with both the on-premise side, which is major grocery store chains, club stores, the competitiveness of that side of the business, and then the on-premise side, which is restaurants and hotels, um, or if you wanna go direct to consumer, e-commerce. Um, strictly speaking, it's uh, industry average, you get about a 40% margin if you're in the three-tier system, as opposed to direct to consumer, which upwards of 75, 80%. So what you do with that supply and that wine and how you calculate your best lots versus the other side, then you situate yourself as a business as to allocate X amount into trade, X amount into direct consumer and so forth. I want to get back to this core competency for a moment, because if I ask, if I ask Bill Harlan, you know, kind of his core competency, he would, he would say it's growing grapes. And, and yet, if I ask Matt Courtney, who, who makes Arista and, and Farron, um, who doesn't grow any grapes at all, he's, he's a brilliant winemaker. And so he would tell you that it's, you know, all about the, the, the manufacturing and the, and the technical side. And I think in fairness, if, if, if I looked at a, a brand like Opus One, you know, I think they would probably, if you shot them full of sodium pentothal, they would, they would have to say that, you know, what, what they really do well is market, you know, they do it, you know, that would be their core competency. So, so, so you, you can't be great at all three. Something's got to kind of drive the train here. Do you agree with that or not? No, I do. And I think that's really how the brand originates. I mean, I'll take uh, uh, the Boyset collection. Uh, he is 
well, I think he started out as a winemaker and he carries the label of the winemaker, but he is a fantastic marketing uh, genius. And so really the brands that come out of, of who I guess the originator or the owner is, I mean, that's really where, where your core competency lies. And I think from us, um, starting with the owner, Jerry, is that he's a farmer. So as far as Broken Earth goes, is we put everything that, uh, that's coming off the, off the vineyard, certified, sustainable, uh, the highest level of uh, sustainability um, restrictions that we put into place. So we place not only our brand name, Rancho Tierra Rajada, uh, which is our vineyard name, but also if you look at all of our marketing collateral, everything has to do with the vineyard and that's really positioned as Jerry and his family. I'll give you another example is that you have, uh, let's take the, the Rabel Wine uh, Company here in Paso. They're fantastic at the marketing aspect of it is whoever that owner is and whatever that niche is, is really where their core competency and where their brand starts. So question for you, Justin. So you grew up with some fairly well-known quality labels. Rusak is, um, you know, one of the one of the better wines out of Santa Ynez. And you ended up in, in Paso at, at, you know, one of the more highly respected wineries in, in Paso. You end up now at your own choice at a brand that may be a little less well-known. How does your path end up where you are today? Well, I mean, I, I think for me personally, when I was with Justin, I mean, they were very well-structured and at the top of their game at all levels of the, you know, of the process. They were not only innovative on the the IT side, but they also had the strength and the power from the, at the time, the Fiji water sales team. So I think the impact that, that I made or, or the potential impact that I can make there was, was certainly, you know, realizable. But what I wanted to do was what I'm doing now is to work with a, a company where that ceiling and, and maybe the impact that I can make is has a greater touch point. So when I went to Broken Earth, I could really utilize my, my finance background, my experience in the sales side, and then work with a talented team here to get to where Justin is. And that to me, that challenge, to me that that's more gratifying than I would say working for a company that's already there. And how did you end up on the east side of Paso? I think I think uh, conventional wisdom would say that brands like Booker and especially Saxum and Laventure and you know maybe maybe even Law or, or Epic have have really sort of put Paso on the map. Um, more west side brands than east side brands. Um, are you benefiting from that, or are you competing with that? How would you characterize that? Yeah, no, that's a that's a, a fantastic question, uh, and certainly uh, when it comes to the accolades, West Side is always first in the sentence. I think what a lot of people, certainly here in Paso, know um, is that the J Lores of the world, who a million cases, well, I mean, their their uh, their vineyards are on the east side. You have. Uh, Austin Hope, who's diversified throughout the ABA, he's here on the east side, and all great wine. but fantastic. I mean, the guy gets 95, 97 points. Um, so uh, the east side, 
traditionally is known as cab country. Um, it is the larger of the two ABAs where we're at the Estrella sub ABA that has the most planted acres of Cabernet. And so, I mean, maybe it's the, the underdog side in me again is I truly believe the action here is on the, the east side. You have Eberly, Gary Eberly, who's, you know, looked at as one of the founding fathers of Paso. He's on the east side. You have Vina Robles, who's become very well known. He's here on the east side as well. Certainly, the, the west side and all, I think there's a, a healthy competition between us here on the east and those on the west, but uh, the west side certainly gets a lot of the, the publication side of it. But what I enjoy the most about Paso is we're the largest ABA in California. It is so well diversified. East versus west, yes, but even if you take the west side and the east side, you can break those up into tons of different micro terroirs, microclimates, um, all of which that, you know, I, I guess can separate or stand alone with any one grape bridle. Just, just for the people like me, when you say AVA, you're talking about a specific location within the vintage community. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, I mean, as far as the AVA is, you have Napa is an AVA, you have Sonoma, you have Santa Barbara, you have Paso. Within those AVAs, which are designated by, um, it goes through a very extensive process with the TTB, but you can separate those ABAs into sub districts and look at it as marketing, look at it as truly uh, the, the process of a sub ABA is if the wine or that microclimate is so different and the fruit is so different, then we have to differentiate itself from the major ABA of Paso Robles. You're saying you couldn't say you're from Paso Robles unless you actually are within that AVA. It's extremely important because, I mean, as you know, if you see a Napa Valley on a label, you're going to pay 80 bucks. If you see a Paso Robles wine, you're going to be paying 40 bucks. Justin and Cliff, let's take a break. We'll be right back. As I look back at my years in business, I remember that there are many, many times I needed a lawyer to just poke their nose in and take a look and see what they could do to help. Sometimes I just needed advice on a lease. Other times I needed to have a contract that a customer wanted me to sign or a vendor wanted me to sign and I wanted someone to look at it. Sometimes I had to worry about employment law. Other times I needed to change my corporation, make partnership agreements, things on that level. So I'm very proud that we are sponsored by a firm that specializes in these types of things for small businesses. Coincidentally, it's called the Small Business Law Firm. Scott Williams is the principal attorney at the Small Business Law Firm. He's the go-to guy for anything related to small business matters. I like to think of them as the Swiss Army knife for your business. So when you're ready, and even if you're not ready, keep it on hand because you might be ready sooner than you know. Call 855-5-BIZ-LAW. That's 855-524-9529. Ask for Scott. Mention the Small Biz Cast. And remember, they're a great resource should things get ugly. We are back. This is Joel Volk of Small BizCast. Together, Cliff Scott of the Scott Group and I are interviewing Justin Tooley of Broken Earth Wines. So I, um, I imagine there must be counterfeiters out there that put out garbage and put on fake labels. That must happen, correct? Uh, I think they do a very good job here domestically. I know in um, once you get outside the U.S., that is extremely prevalent and hard to, to really notice the difference. One of my favorite things about uh, the wine business is the marketing aspect. And um, certainly you have, uh, there's a story of a group of Psalms and there was a $2 ball of wine and there's a $40 ball of wine. You put them in the same glass and most people don't know the difference. 
besides that. So um, what really distinguishes is the label and what where it comes from. One of my favorite things to do when I'm with, uh, you know, Paso Robles is, is relatively well known at this point, but uh, say I'm in, in Florida with somebody that all they care about is Napa wine is I'll put a brown paper bag with a Paso wine and a Napa wine, and I'll say, tell me the difference. A lot of times they're picking Paso and it opens people's eyes to it. So uh, I thought you might like that one, Cliff, coming from the marketing side. Yeah, for sure. You know, while, while we're on the subject of marketing, and it's kind of tied in with the revenue side as well, um, we're all living through COVID-19 right now and, and the implications of that. From a marketing perspective, your wines are experiencing less exposure in retail because people can't get into retail. Sometimes retail is shut down. Uh, wine stores are not always known as stores that, that can continue open during this period. Um, grocery stores are, so maybe that offsets it. But, but certainly restaurants are having, you know, restaurants are one of your major sampling areas. Right. So, so, so how, how is that impacting your business and, and what are you doing about that? Yeah, I don't think there's, there's been a more challenging time in the wine industry because, again, you, you go back to there's 100, 200,000 brands. What really differentiates the La Crema Kindle Jacksons that my mom and her mom drank from the new up-and-coming brands? Well, it's, it's hand-selling. So if you're in a grocery store and you have the license to, you can actually pour the wine for the customer so they can try it. Most of us are doing festivals or going out and hand selling wine. I mean, that's the, the best marketing tool that's out there is getting out into the different, getting out into festivals, getting people to try the, the wine. Well, obviously you can't do that at this point. And before this call, I had a, a call with a national retailer um, on the East Coast and we were doing a Zoom meeting and I was tasting the wine and he was tasting the wine in New Jersey and uh, we had sent them samples and it's just a completely different world out there. It's not the same when you're able to experience it with somebody and, and really be like, oh, that's a beautiful, are you getting the minerality? I mean, it's, when you're doing it through a computer, it's different. Right. So what everybody's turning to is social media. Social media, the quickest way to get direct consumer. Certainly when this all happened, everybody was doing virtual wine tastings and I think the consumer got burnout from that. So we're all kind of looking through, well, what's the next step is this three, four month period has, has started to linger and people are getting fatigued on the social media, the virtual wine tastings, the, you know, all of those things. So um, we're getting, we're getting uh, uh, creative out here uh, in Paso Robles. We're able to still serve wine. We're in our parking lot, so it's a different experience. <laughs> we have tents set up and um, people are tasting wine on, on the asphalt, which I never thought I, I would say out loud. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to have fun with it and say, well, maybe we should get roller skates and do the old Bebop burger, you know, how... How do, we, how do we create an experience? Because that's really what marketing is all about, is, is the experience. And when you're not there and you're not able to drink the wine, um, you know, it, it gets difficult. I imagine you're going to combine that with the social, social media so you can do the Facebook Live events and that sort of thing. So you have the unique marketing outdoors with some social media elements built into that might be something that would be helpful. As a company, as a brand, as an organization, you're used to kind of dealing with external influences on your business that, you know, as you were saying earlier, that 
you know, a frost happens in early March and, and, you know, right after bud break or rain drenching happens in July or does that help prepare you for the type of external influence that, that we're having now? Yeah, I think we're all waiting for the locust to invade the, the vineyard from 2020. But I mean, certainly, again, and I go back to stories because wines, you know, every wine tells a story, every vintage tells a story. So the more that all of us on the team can get out there and experience the vintage and, and live through that vintage and able to tell that story when it comes out into the marketplace. And, and that's kind of what we're focusing on social media is that uh, next month when we expect harvest to, to begin is we're going to kick off a social media campaign stories from from the vineyard uh, we're gonna be we're gonna have our yeah video crew out there and um, out there uh, everything from the snakes that are in the vineyards or you know the, that are in the vines or um, all the the difficulties of machines breaking down and all the experiences that vine, that harvests bring um, that's really how we're going to tackle the marketing aspect of it this year. And what about from a revenue perspective? I would imagine that this has got to be a tough year with, with those channels drying up the way they've dried up. Yeah. I mean, uh, for us specifically is that on uh, the majority, we're significantly positioned on our trade uh, side of the business. From that trade side of the business, 65% of that is based on on-premise, hotels, restaurants. What was challenging back in March and April is that not only did that seize up within a matter of five to seven days, but the unpredictability of when that would start back up again is that people froze their AR. So typically for the accounting group out there is that we ship uh, to a distributor, they typically pay 45 days out, and then they 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 ship directly to the restaurant or to the grocery store. So it's a three-tier system. So not only are those accounts freezing up for our distributor, who then freezes their accounts for us, but it happened in a matter of five days, and the impacts of furloughs and layoffs of everything else. So I mean. I was drinking some really good balls of wine to relieve the stress uh, for a matter of three to four days. But really the saving grace for us was, is this tremendous boom in e-commerce, uh, not only for our brands, but you also have, you know, call it the first leafs of the world or the, the winks, these virtual business models where they, some of them do own a winery, others just source from, from brands all over the world and they're experiencing 600% growth. Right. A lot of these, I mean, I, you know, not to associate with names, but they're coming up with anywhere from a hundred thousand to a million cases in deficit because everybody's drinking wine from home these days. There's no else, no other way to do it. So uh, we've been able to lock into some key relationships there that have really got us through this period. I'm start, it, it, it's a different world. The majority of my time is usually spent traveling and in the markets, in the various markets. The challenges with that, uh, and buyers don't want to see you, distributors don't want you in their car to go to the different accounts. We're trying to figure out what this next step is, but the markets are slowly opening up. 
but it, it's been a challenging time. And my heart really goes out for those growers who don't have the outlets that we do. They're, they just have a direct consumer model. And if they don't have a restaurant license, the farming bills don't stop. And the subsidiary money isn't covering the farming bills. I can guarantee you that. So when your only channel is direct consumer in the tasting room and that dries up, um, it's going to be a difficult situation, I think, once this year ends and, you know, the dust kind of settles. So does that create an opportunity for larger companies to acquire smaller companies? Is that a business opportunity? I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of that going on. I, I think also from a consumer perspective, too, is that you will get these fan. You, you brought up Booker. Uh, well, they just signed with Constellation, but um the, the, you have these small mom and pop wineries that need to make ends meet. So instead of selling out of their tasting room, you're getting tremendous value in different ways out on through either a broker or through different virtual wine clubs. You're getting Napa Valley wine for 20 bucks. And there's no better time to, to stock up your cellar and get tremendous value in the wine industry because, I mean, it's everywhere you look. Well, the flash merchants are going crazy right now. They're selling stuff so fast they can't they can't even believe it. Absolutely. Yeah, the lot 18s and the wine still sold out and the wine accesses of the world. Um, they're moving inventory faster than they ever thought they could move it. You're exactly right. And that's where all the action is right now. From a, the GM's perspective, then, are you planning ahead to have fewer bottles produced and then sell more grapes or is the other way around? Are you going to produce more? It seems like one is hedging the bed of the other. You have to get your crystal ball out and figure out which, what to read. Yeah. I, I, I think that is the, the hardest part and what makes or breaks winery. So I'll, I'll take two perspectives, oversupply or undersupply. Undersupply, we touched on that earlier. If you don't have enough bottles of wine that basically makes you cash flow happier or profitability, you have to raise the prices in the wine industry. Typically what is most traditional is that your bottle price, call it $15.99, is $15.99 every single year. And not only once you get into higher price points, you need to have accolades from call it enthusiast or some sort of brand premium to really sell that brand. So it's not really as easy as hey, you know, we have a 50% supply. I'm just going to increase my price by, by twice as much. It doesn't work that way. So typically you're eating those profits. But what's far worse than that is actually an oversupply. So when you have an oversupply, the wine industry is very close to the luxury commodity industry. I'll, I'll, I'll use the, the brand uh, Ugg Boots. It was their perspective that they would never discount Ugg Boots because once the consumer knows that the brand's discounted, they're never going to buy it at that true price anymore. Right. And there's also brand erosion on that. So if you're a wine industry and say you get twice as much, which requires twice as much money to get it into the bottle, twice as capacity space, hopefully you have the capacity to do that. It's really hard to grow that distribution side. It's a cost volume profit relationship. So you have to... I would call it drop your prices or incentivize the buyer and have them maintain that price to get through that full supply. Because every single year you only have X amount of capacity in uh, your, your, um, in your production space and that new vintage isn't coming in. So 
the, I think that the challenging part is trying to create a business model based on a projection of what that harvest is and how quickly you're going to get through that harvest. And that's the part where my finance background, I mean, I, I appreciate the most is the financial planning analysis side of it. I can imagine. I, I would think that's why you have the volume label though, for when you're oversupplied. So you don't have to discount the, your premier brand. Is that correct? Absolutely. And so right now in the wine industry is there is the most amount of wine, the wine glut, uh, in the history of the industry. So, <laughs> so wait, wait, Cliff, that's yeah. like an opportunity for you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, again, it's, uh, you know, you have a, a small brand that carries a premium you don't want to discount that to get through the volume side of it. So what do you do? You create a, a private label. And uh, the wine industry is so different from beer and spirits or any other beverage. It is so easy. We can develop, we have an on-site designer, we have a compliance team. We can develop a new label and send it out into the market in 30 days. It's that easy to do. Now, the, the other side to that too is you're not, when you sell a private label, you don't carry the premium of the Broken Earth brand name, but it also allows you another outlet to not discount your brand, to get it out there and creates a tougher time because the wine industry is shrinking as it is. Less people now are drinking wine, call it the millennials because they feel that there's health effects or alternative substitute products. So the wine industry is shrinking in a sense and now we're in the biggest oversupply in the history of California. So really? again, a fun time to work for a winery. As opposed to the beer industry, as opposed to, to other related industries like wine, yours are vintage dependent. So, you know, whatever you grow in that year is whatever gets labeled for that year. And there's no way around it. Absolutely right. Not only that, but uh, well, spirits is different, but the wine industry is, in beer, you can turn around your manufacturing process 30, 60, 90 days. So look at that as like a just-in-time inventory system, right. uh, you know. Wine isn't that. Wine, whatever that vintage gave you is your fixed commodity and you have to do the best with it. You put it in the cellar, uh, you can't make, well, we don't make wine uh, for less than nine months. So that's typically sits in cellar for two years and you're stuck with that. Again, you know, the spirit side, like you said, Cliff, that's not vintage specific, but wine is, is extremely challenging because it is vintage specific. Uh, and we have a long turnaround time on the manufacturing side. So Justin, it sounds like the small guys, the small guys with the very upscale, the Saxons of the world and the Laventures, who, those who have most of their business on a direct-to-consumer basis, who have a waiting list on their wine clubs, um, those guys will probably weather the storm fine. And the, the big guys always find a way to weather the storm because they're, they're just big. It seems like the, the, the squeeze is on the middle guys. It seems like the squeeze is on people like Broken Earth right now. Absolutely. So, I mean, you named it. The smaller guys are going to do fantastic through their own wine club. The bigger guys, they have their own sales rep. So call it Gallo. Gallo's got their own sales rep. Not only they, do they own a distributor, more or less, but they have their own sales reps in every single city. Well, 50% of the market uh, on-premise is shut down. So now they're using their weight to throw into the clubs, the Costco's, the Sam's, the BJ's, the grocery store chains, the, the middle tier that doesn't have either the labor the, in the form of sales 
or maybe the capital as the form of the bigger guys, you know, it is extremely difficult. Um, the smaller guys, they have their, their wine that they'll sell out to the clubs. The bigger guys are really throwing their weight around in the on-premise or off-premise, which is dominating the sales industry right now. Uh, Justin, how do you align your brand, the Broken Earth brand, which is your primary brand, with the consumer? I notice that you've got Cabernets at $20, you've got Cabernets at $48, and you've got a few cabs at $80. Bucks. Yeah, it, would, it would seem like one label to appeal to a, a, a range of consumers from $28 to $80 is is fairly unusual, is it? Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> the way that we, so Paso Robles, cab country. When people think of Paso Robles, they think of fantastic cabs, Rhone style, Grenaches, Syrahs, Zinfandels, but, but cab is really the driver. And if you look at it, so many great wineries, but Jay Lore, Justin, Dow, they're known for the cabs. Not only that, but the market share is Cabernet is the most consumed, it just passed Chardonnay, the most consumed red wine that's out there. Really? Now, the, what, what's interesting is you look at price point. Us coming from Paso in, in a premium wine growing region, we feel that everybody in the marketplace is buying a $20, $40 fall of cab. That's not the case. Uh, over 80% of people buy wine that's under $10. Um, again, I won't throw anybody under the bus here, but you know the majority of the wine is consumed under $10 from a grocery store. Is that from a box? So, from box wines, from, yeah, your, your jug wine, so to speak. So, that, you know, you go to other parts and they're not looking at the, the wine the same way we do. Mm -hmm. So the way we've situated our business is we have entry level, so to speak, the, the 1299 cab. We have the broken earth, which is the, the trade, the estate at $20. We have the limited release at 30. We have the reserve at 40. And then we have our premium at 80. So, Within each of those, we're commanding not only that pricing segment, but Cabernet uh, that really drives the volume in what Paso is known for. What's next for you and what's next for Broken Earth? How do you see the future going forward? When I, whenever I'm doing a SWOT analysis with a client, I find your particular model the hardest. Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the things that differentiates us is that we grow over 24 varietals. And it speaks to Paso. Everything grows well here aside from Pinot Noir, but even I've tried some fantastic Pinot Noir in, in Paso. Um, so for us, it's growing new varieties. And we just launched, um, we just put in bottle Fiano, which is our first vintage. Um, we have Torontes coming out, Nero Diablo. Um, so those are three new varietals that we're introducing uh, to our wine club members. Chris has a very diverse background, so he has experience on the sparkling side. We launched last year a sparkling Merlot, which is, I guess, uh, akin to a sparkling Shiraz, so it's different. Um, we just released this month a sparkling Albarino, sparkling Bordello, and then the traditional Grenache Rosé. I can't so, wait till my samples get here. This is good. Oh, yeah. They're fantastic. We just had them uh, <laughs> over the weekend. Um, and, and what's new to us is I, I'm crossing my fingers that Jerry is going to buy off on a canning unit. Now, this is something I think where you, you talk to Chris and, and myself about is for me, I see JLOR that they built their brand name on a national basis off of one product. So 
the more we introduce, the better for our direct to consumer, but the harder it is to manage the financial planning analysis side and the harder to manage it is on a national basis. So we're really looking at coming up with innovation, cans, sparkling, new varieties for direct to consumer. But for us, it's focusing on the core movers on a national basis that drive people into the wine club. So somebody in Indiana has a ball of Broken Earth Cabernet, they like it, they go to the website, shoot, these guys got sparkling wine, they got canned wine, there's the variety, hopefully they join the wine club. Um, that's really how we're focusing our, our future. So I, I'm gonna have it in the show notes, but maybe you can tell the listener how they get a hold of the wine club and how they can sample some of your wines. Yeah, so uh, obviously the, the easiest way is www.brokenearthwines.com, brokenearthwinery.com. Uh, we're really putting a push on, on social media as well. That's the best way. And Paso Robles is still open. The tasting rooms are still open. So, and it's a beautiful facility. I've been there many, many times. It's a, it's a beautiful facility. The people are really helpful. The teaching you about the wines. You don't have to be a wine expert or feel intimidated at any level going in. And if you're a person like Cliff, you'll enjoy asking questions that they'll give you good answers to. Uh, so it's, it's really a good, a good operation for people of all levels of wine interest. And I'll have that all in the show notes so we can make it easy for people to get a hold of you. Fantastic. Thank you. Hey, Justin, one final question, which is those those listeners who are maybe not wine aficionados that you are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are some sort of business insights that you've gained over your career of kind of reconciling the tension that, that occurs between, as you say, winemaking and, 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 you know, distribution or you know, underproduction and overproduction. What 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 can you share with those listeners about about sort of how to reconcile those those sort of dis, disparate goals and agendas? <laughs> I think the first thing is uh, work for a winery. Don't don't ever buy one. <laughs> um, you know, the, the second lesson is really managing that downside, uh, having a plan in place where if you do have an oversupply or undersupply. Um, coming up with multiple versions of the, the plan. As you said, the, you know, kind of that team atmosphere, I think that's incredibly important. When you have people that are, Parker, Robert Parker had one of the best wine quotes that's out there is that when you see a brand on the shelf, when you know you really made it, is that somebody can experience that brand on the shelf and it takes you back to the tasting room and that brand experience is seamless. And when you have people that are all trying to take a brand in different direction and aren't on the same boat, you don't really have a brand. People with all the brands that are out there, brand confusion takes place and they'll just move to the next one. So I think having uh, all aspects of the brand aligned, and this is something I learned working at Justin in Fiji, even from the person that was working at AR and AP, you can tell the level of professionalism, you could tell the brand, and you would expect that at all levels of the company. So ensuring that you have a team that's focused on one division, on, on one vision, and whatever that vision is, sticking to that vision, and you can't change it. I mean, it's so easy to change your brand experience, but you can't. Um, I, I think that's how people really make it in this tough, difficult industry. How would you characterize the culture of Broken Earth? So I'd like to think that we're innovative. 
Um, again, with the number of products that we come out with, Chris certainly is always trying to push the limits as to the, the new type of innovation. I think that we are a lean, strong operation. We are, again, 35 states and we have personnel under 25 people. So um, we're hardworking. We're all kind of in the same boat together and, and looking to get established. And I say this because I talk with my colleagues across the street that are at 500,000 cases, a million cases, the bigger you get, the more problems you get. So um, I think we're, we're looking to build a national brand and everybody's focused on that with a small lean and lean team. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Cliff, for participating in this. Next time you're, you're out here, Joel, let me know. And uh, well, for both of you and Cliff as well, we'd love to take you through the, the experience and uh, you know, love to meet you guys in person. Yeah, Thanks. Justin, I'm, I'm up in Paso a lot, so uh, I'd love to come by. Fantastic. Now, I could use some of your expertise on the marketing side. It sounds like you have a good handle on that. Thanks, you guys. Thank you, guys. Take care, Justin. Take care. For those of you that are subscribers of Small BizCast, we really appreciate it. And if you'd like to be a subscriber, just go to where you get your podcast and hit subscribe. I'd like to thank those of you who connect with us on Facebook and on LinkedIn and also on Instagram. It's really great that we're getting so many shares and comments. We really appreciate the growing audience that we're enjoying. If you'd like to ask us some business questions, have us workshop a problem, or if you're thinking about sponsoring a show, go to smallbizcast.com. There's places there to just click and write in your questions, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Over the many years I've worked at Mercury Document Imaging, we've been solving business problems using technology, and now we have this new reality. Employees are working from home, and companies are trying to stay relevant and efficient and have accountability for their employees while doing so. The big problem is that the cyber criminals are working from home too, and they have been doing this longer and know what they're doing and know what vulnerabilities you've created by kind of throwing this together quickly. So now that it looks like we're going to be here for a while, it's time to think about this. I want you to reach out to my company. We'll either help you or refer you to a partner that can help you, depending on what the vulnerability is. But the first thing to do is start with an assessment, make sure that you're protected, and then find the weak link. So please call us, 818-782-1221. My extension is 25913. But call anybody at the office. We're all happy to help you, and we want to make sure that we don't have any more problems than we already have. Thanks. Have you ever had an idea for a product? We're sure that it would make a fortune, only to find out that A, they already exist, or B, that it's really not marketable at all. I know plenty of people have done that. In fact, don't tell anybody, but I'm one of them. So I decided to interview an expert on the topic. Eric Paul Rose of Pinnacle Product Innovation is my next guest on Small BizCast. Here's a sneak peek. Well, I worked at Mattel Toys for five years, and one of my jobs there was to look at a sketch from a designer and be able to answer that question. Can that toy in that sketch it's going to retail for $19.99, let's call it $20. So that means it has to be able to be produced for, let's call it $4. Is there $4 worth of material and labor in that product? Not $6, not $8, but maybe $4. And so I got pretty good at being able to do that. And that's an integral part of a new product's commercial success. That technical feasibility at a cost low enough where everybody can make money. Small BizCast drops every other Monday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers and send your feedback to jv at smallbizcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors, Mercury Document Imaging and the Small Business Law Firm. We couldn't do this without you. 
And of course, thanks to my producer and my son, Charlie Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Couldn't do without him either. Thank you very much for listening. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. <laughs>